Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. I'm Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery and this is episode 234. Jocelyn Gly. It is indeed. Host of uh, the podcast Hurry Slowly. Isn't that a great name for a podcast? Yeah, a podcast about slowing down and... In a fast-paced world. A, yeah, exactly. Seriously, though, but it's it's brilliant. I was so stoked to chat with Jocelyn because... So much better than the Slow Home podcast. Totally. <laughs> Beating us in the name stakes because it's a competition. Uh, no, I was really stoked to chat with Jocelyn. We'd been trying to organise this conversation for about four months. She uh, is unapologetically not super responsive on email. In, okay. terms, like in terms of speed, she will get back yeah. to you, but it's not like a, you know, 20-minute turnaround or anything like that. Uh, and I'm pretty much the same. And Christmas happened and then we've been traveling. And mm. anyway, we finally got there and I'm glad of it. Yeah, awesome. We had such a good conversation. Before we get on to talk about a little bit about that conversation, I feel like I haven't asked you this question. So what's going on? <laughs> it's been a while. Thanks we, for asking. We have not had a podcast, uh, sorry, a um, host full a while since early Feb. See, and this is the funny thing about the experiments. No. Is it early? Yeah, early yeah, February. something like that. Yeah. yeah, this is the funny thing about the experiments mm. is that I feel like you and I have these conversations about a certain element of slow living every week, every second month, but the hostful has sort of not happened since the beginning of that free flowing podcast year. Hostful, but next stay week. tuned. Next week. Next week is hostful time. But in the meantime, what what can people do to Connect with us a little bit more. It's a good question. I've been pondering this quite a lot lately with the whole Facebook privacy debacle and, I don't know, the noise of social media in general. Uh, it, I don't like it much. Mm. I don't, like I get it, you've got to be where people are and I'm glad that people are places and they want to hear from us. But I kind of want to get people into our space rather than using Mr. Zuckerberg's space mm. and all of those innate problems that have been <laughs> appearing lately. So anyway, we are starting, or probably have by now, started our newsletter. So a weekly email <laughs> from you or I in your inbox once a uh, once a week, every seven days. It's good to be writing. It's really nice to be writing again. Yep. Like we put together, I put together the blog post every week for the podcast, but it's really nice to just have this kind of Free. consistent but not structured mm. approach to putting stuff out again. I'm really enjoying it. And so, pe and people can get a taste of my writing as well. I guess. Can. Yes, you and I are kind of tag teaming, which mm. is great. So, if that tickles your fancy then you can head over to slowyourhome.com slash slowpost and add your email address there. Obviously, we will not add you to any spam lists. We will not sell your email address to anybody. Mm. It uh, It's just to hear from us once a week. And one of the, the biggest benefits, I guess, for that over the next few months is that excitingly, we're putting together the itinerary for the American Canadian book tour. Absolutely. So slow comes out in the States and Canada beginning of July. And I'm so pumped. It, I feel like it's been a long time coming. Mm. And working with my publisher to put on some events in bookstores, hopefully quite a few of them 
I don't have any finalized details to share with you yet. But if you want to keep tabs on where we're heading and what dates we're looking at and where you can find out more information about it as we announce, just add your name to the uh, the newsletter list and we will keep you abreast of developments. Absolutely. I was going to say the only promotion that you'll see from the newsletters is our own. Well, just like the book yeah, and the tour yep. and perhaps one day again our retreat. But that's about it. Yeah, it's not going to be a sell your stuff kind of email list. Really, more than anything, it's it's kind of to replace the role that social media used to play. I hmm. think it's very noisy on Facebook and Instagram and I hate trying to play those algorithm games to get in front of you. I've just decided that if you want to hear from us, that's the easiest way to do it. We'll yeah. give you a insight into what's happening with us week to week. Just really brief kind of two or three minute read of what's going on. A few links to stuff we're enjoying movies to watch, music to listen to, podcasts to check out, guests, books to read, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's really just a a weekly check-in. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to it. So Sign up now on slowyourhome.com slash... Slow post. We digress. Back to Jocelyn. Mm -hmm. Why was this such a good chat? Oh, Jocelyn's tops. So on the face of it, she and I approach our podcast conversations very similarly with with very similar kind of values and themes at play. But what I found really interesting is that by design or not, her podcast really does kind of lean more towards the entrepreneurial space, the tech space. She speaks to a lot of um, startup founders of people who work in startups. So people who work in quite fast paced, high stress uh, industries at least stereotypically speaking. And I find that really interesting because it's not necessarily where I do a lot of my interviews. And I think that it's a question that a lot of listeners have. How can I continue to work in, insert fast-paced industry here, yet find slow? And she has a lot of really interesting insights. We talk, I mean, as part of that, we, we talk about mindfulness. We talk about technology, of course, and the huge role that it plays in our stress levels. And we also talk about some really specific tips that Jocelyn has about kind of taming the email mm. beast. And her insights into that were really, they're very simple, but really powerful. So she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Unsubscribe. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it is all about taming the email beast, which is like a generational issue. Kind of our generation really is one of the first to have to deal with it and have to come up with strategies for it. So... I found that really just flat out helpful. Absolutely. I'm hearing same, same, but different with a technology slant. In part, yeah. But we also have, look, I'm not going to go into some of the fun stuff that we talk about, but uh, yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed this. So I know you're going to love listening to Jocelyn. Check out her podcast, Hurry Slowly. It is Wrapping up the first season towards the end of May, but she's coming back for season two. There's about 32, 33 episodes to listen to, so plenty to dig your teeth into. Uh, And if you head to hurryslowly.co, you'll find links to the podcast. And I will, of course, include links to everything in the show notes. Slowyourhome.com slash 234. 234, Jocelyn Gly. Enjoy.
Jocelyn, hello. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Feeling pretty good. Pleasure. I'm uh, I'm I'm delighted to chat with you. Actually, I just mentioned to you that I've been keeping up with your work for a long time. So it's um yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because for a lot of reasons, but specifically the podcast that you've been putting out the past few months, Hurry Slowly, is fantastic. And I feel like the place that you're coming from is quite different to a lot of the guests that I often have on because so many of the people you speak to on your podcast work in the tech space or they're entrepreneurs, they work in really high, fast-paced, high-stress kind of industries, you know, in terms of stereotypes at least. And yet you focus on the slow elements of what these people are doing. And I really can't wait to dig into that because I think that the bucolic vision of slow living is, is beautiful and all, but it's not applicable to everyone. So before we get into it, I want to ask, what does slow look like for you personally? Yeah, it's funny when you cast it that way. I think um, in many ways, it it just looks like not fast, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, it's really about pacing yourself. So it's less about going slow than it is about working at a pace that's sustainable for you over time. You know, the podcast is not exclusively about work, but that's sort of, you know, a primary lens through which a lot of the interviews happen. Really, the original motivation for the show was both talking to people and looking at some research around kind of almost this rising epidemic of burnout, really. Mm. A lot of times when I talk to folks, you know, when I'm speaking in public, and I have an audience in front of me, I'll ask people, um, you know, I'll say, raise your hand uh, if you feel like you work really hard. Typically, you know, almost everyone in the audience raises their hand. And I say, okay, keep your hand up if you feel like uh, you could keep working in that way for the next 10 or even 20 years. And then almost every hand (laughs) goes down. Mm -hmm. So I think, and that may be a product, I think, as you say, of the sorts of of folks that um, I'm kind of the milieu that I'm in, you know, which maybe is a, a little bit more of a tech startup realm, but I don't think that's uncommon. And I mentioned the research side, and there's actually this study uh, that they do here in America, I believe it's called the General Social Survey, and it kind of you know, sort of takes the gauge of society and how people are feeling, um, how people are working. And one of the questions they ask people is, um, are you constantly exhausted from working? Mm -hmm. And they've been doing this study every year since the 70s. And back in the 70s, only about, I think it was 17 or 8 percent, or excuse me, 17 or 18 percent of people said yes to that question. And then in 2016, that was number was 50%. So 50% of people were saying that they were regularly exhausted from work. So I think that really speaks to this struggle with pacing ourselves. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I I agree with you a a lot about, you know, your simple definition of slow is to simply not go fast. And I think it can be as simple as that. And we tend to complicate things and and life is more complicated now, obviously, than it was in the 70s. So that also means we feel kind of trapped. But I think that it can be that simple, at least in certain parts of life. I mean, I think the thing that we always go to first is our attachment to technology. You know, we're always on. So people used to have weekends, people used to have vacations, holidays were downtime, evenings were downtime, yet we're now attached to our technology and the expectation, or at least we feel like the expectation is that we need to be on all the time. 
Have you changed your personal approach to technology and, and accessibility over the last few years as a result of, you know, shifting towards this idea of slow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in so many different ways, I guess just to think about a few things, I mean, of course, um, you know, I think kind of number one is is your relationship to email is something that kind of plagues all of us and adds a lot of urgency and anxiety to our lives. So, you know, I've been spending um, a lot of time uh, sort of you know, setting more boundaries in email, deciding, you know, that emails from people that I don't know, I'm not going to treat as urgent, um, you know, getting better at setting boundaries, getting better at saying no. And, you know, as you probably may know, I, in fact, ended up writing a book about this called Unsubscribe, mm-hmm. because I think that email really is such a kind of all-consuming um, thing for people that really ramps up this urgency um, in so many areas of life. But beyond that, I think also just really thinking about the smartphone and, you know, how much we sort of turn to it again and again and again, you know, to complete different tasks um, throughout our day and really trying to figure out how to decouple, you know, a lot of the things Mm -hmm. that I do throughout the day from my smartphone so that just that the strength of that kind of attachment weakens a bit because of course, right. What happens is, you know, you go to check the weather and then all of a sudden you see this email notification and, you know, maybe it's some sort of message that gives you a little bit of anxiety. And, you know, then all of a sudden your mind is kind of spinning off, you know, in this other direction when you, you know, we're going to go out for a walk and just wanted to know if you needed to put on a coat. Right. (laughs) So I think the more that you can kind of be conscious of different activities that you can kind of decouple from the phone, you know, so even something as simple as if you use your phone as a clock, you know, getting a bedside clock so you can leave your phone in the other room. And that almost like removes this whole suite of temptations, you know, to be on social media or to check your email before bed, you know, all these types of things. And then also really just kind of pulling back from my computer in general. So trying to do a lot more activities in an analog way rather than kind of defaulting to digital. So even if I'm writing uh, an article or a blog post, um, you know, I'll kind of leave my computer and go to the sofa and take a big sketch pad out and kind of sketch out the broad strokes of an idea rather than doing that at my computer and then kind of going back to my computer when I'm really clear on what I want to write Mm. about. So you know, lots of different ways of of decoupling from technology and being a little bit more conscious. And I and I think that when you do that, you know, you find that doing these things without your phone or doing these activities in an analog way um, gives you much more pleasure than doing it on a computer would. I could not agree with you more. Uh, <laughs> I have always been a, a pencil and notepad kind of person. You know, even when I was studying at uni and everyone was just tapping away on their laptops, I just, my I don't know if it's the way my brain is wired or just a preference, but I could never process information in the same way. I could never think as freely when I was typing as when I'm, you know, like you say, sitting down with a big sketch pad or a notepad and just letting my brain kind of do its thing. And it's such a joy, I find, to to do things in an analog fashion, particularly when it seems kind of quirky these days for people to do that. Uh, and I think I do think that there is a resurgence of analog, you know, efforts to to be creative and and even just to do your regular work because people are building this awareness because of people like you who are you know talking about how much our tech is having an impact on our ability to be creative and to think in certain ways. And creativity is something that you talk about a lot in your podcast and in uh, your newsletter and the work that you do. 
Can you tell me what the what you've discovered the relationship is between intention or mindfulness or slow, whatever you want to call it, and creativity for you personally? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that question before. I mean, I think right now, I think for me that relationship it, it does go back to a lot of the things that we were that we were just talking about, and in particular, just recognizing that you really need to kind of you know, leave this sort of wide open space for, you know, daydreaming or mind wandering or even boredom, that that Mm -hmm. is a really critical part of the creative process, which I think is something that we've forgotten. Um, For instance, it's so funny, I was just reading this before we got on the call, I was just reading this newsletter that is uh, like an update on the podcasting world. And it had these kind of new stats of how many people are listening to podcasts. And it was like the average listener is listening to seven podcasts a week, I think. And what was interesting was that that podcast listening wasn't replacing other media, it was in addition to. So Hmm. Not that, of course, I want to dissuade anyone from listening to podcasts for you know, either you or me, uh, who are both podcasters, but right, that just speaks to, I think people have more and more ways of consuming and consuming media in particular. So you're kind of constantly adding more inputs into your brain, right? And this this time that used to be downtime is getting filled up by other mm. stuff, And what we're often missing when we do that, we think like, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to this podcast. Like I'm going to learn something and you probably will. But at the same time, you know, you're also kind of, you know, edging into or eroding this like quite fertile period for creativity. And one of the interviews that I did on the podcast with this guy, Alex Pang, who wrote this book called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, he talks about, um, you know, when you are doing nothing, research shows that your brain is only about 5% less active than, you know, when you're trying mm. to solve a calculus problem or, you know, wrestling um, with sort of a naughty creative question. But what's happening is that these disparate parts of your brain that aren't normally connected are are getting connected. And that's why, you know, so often you have those kind of aha moments, you know, when you're in the shower or you're on a walk or, you know, when your mind is really not trying to do something else. It's just kind of daydreaming or wandering. And so I think that's something that we're really starting to miss out on. And that's a crucial part of the creative process, but also kind of back to your question about mindfulness. What also happens during those periods is really sense-making and self-reflection, right? It's when we process memories, we process conversations, and when we really do a lot of autobiographical processing and really reflect on who we are and kind of where we're going. And so Mm -hmm. it also is a really critical time for just kind of understanding yourself. And when you sort of co-opt that time, you know, by putting kind of more information in there, you really miss out on something. And I think it also just kind of adds to that urgency and that kind of feeling of like almost speedy anxiety because you're not kind of having these, you know, kind of pauses or rests Mm. throughout the day. Yeah. What you were saying before about, uh, you know, passive kind of attention going for a walk or something like that is really relevant at the moment. We're in the middle of doing an experiment by the time this goes out it'll be finished, but where we have uh, challenged ourselves to spend 60 minutes in nature every day. 
And the change in my mindset and my creativity and just my entire outlook, the way I'm thinking about things, <laughs> as you say, the, the self-reflection that's come about because of that. And I'd like to think that I was someone who was fairly comfortable with downtime and boredom and, you know, analog and mindfulness. It's just, it's quite incredible. And I do think that we go to great lengths to avoid boredom for a lot of reasons probably, but I do think that we're generally speaking afraid of the discomfort that comes from it. Do you, what, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. So I, um, I actually recently did because I was thinking very much about this topic that I was just talking about of sort of inputs versus outputs. And I'm someone who reads obsessively. So I'm just like constantly reading, you know, I'm like microwaving something and I'm, you know, like reading in between, you know, in like 45 seconds. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm no stranger to sort of constantly, um, taking in media. I just do a lot of it, maybe, you know, printed books or magazines. But um, I decided to do a no inputs diet for five days. So no email, no internet, no Netflix, no reading, no text messages. So really like no inputs, you know, so I could listen to music I could, you know, call someone on the telephone. I could go out and hang out with someone in person. You know, I could go to the movies. But, you know, I couldn't consume media in any of those sort of internet-y or text-y ways in which we normally do. Um, no podcasts as well. And I definitely got extremely – I definitely was very bored <laughs> at certain <Right>. periods. <laughs> but it was interesting. I mean, it, it made me conscious of, you know, some things that – more conscious of that, some things that I already was conscious of. Um, certainly, you know, how often I turned to my smartphone, um, you know, without email, without text, without internet. My phone was sort of like this, you know, dead object, right? Like it was just like sort of like having a landline. It's like, why am I carrying this thing around with me? You know, I'm not going to do anything with it. It also – made me, you know, more conscious of thought patterns, how much time I kind of spent thinking about and planning the future. Mm. And it also made me conscious of, um, you know, how much I use, you know, reading or listening to something for companionship, you know, like eating a meal or I, I live by myself and I, I work alone primarily. So, you know, I have, I spend a lot of time by myself. Um, and so I often use media to kind of, you know, for this almost sort of companionship, So it was interesting to, you know, go through that kind of, you know, I guess cleanse for five days and, um, you know, really become conscious of how, how dependent you are on those things. Yeah, absolutely. Has any, has anything changed as a result of that for you? You know, I already, I think had made a lot of change. Like for instance, you know, prior to that, for instance, I had removed Twitter app from my phone for probably a month Mm -hmm. before. It did, I think one of the primary things was it made me more conscious when I came back to my computer of a lot of little habits that I had that were felt very kind of silly and meaningless. So one of them, you know, might be like something like checking, you know, podcast download stats or, you know, Mm -hmm. checking my Twitter notifications even on my computer, like these sort of little things that you do that aren't really getting you anywhere, um, just sort of felt, you know, incredibly kind of empty. Like, why am I, you know, why am I even spending like 10 (laughs) seconds on this thing? So, you know, I think it just, it it makes you a little bit more conscious of, um, you know, some of those kind of empty, empty activities, you know, certainly how much time I, you know, I, I might spend, you know, watching something like streaming TV or Netflix or something like that, removing that from your life, I think is very healthy. 
Yeah, I think I think so. And just it's a recalibration, really, isn't it? Doing yeah. something like that. I mean, recently it was just the National Day of Unplugging, and it's like one day, twenty four hours. You know, unless you're kind of, I don't even know who would need to to make special kind of consideration for one day, but everyone can afford to have one day offline. And the reactions that people were having after just one day of being offline were, were not dissimilar to what you experienced. Just a complete recalibration of how often we go for the phone, how often we we try and fill the, the void, the silence, the boredom with some kind of input. And it's it's quite humbling, I think, to realize that we really, even though we might be someone who is aware of it, who has made big changes, to still see the grip that technology can have on our attention is really, it can be quite stunning. Yeah, no. And I think, I I think in many ways you're right. Like you think that, you know, and then you kind of take it away and then, and then you really find out like, um, there's one experiment Mm. that, um, Tyler Cowen, who's this really wonderful, um, economist who I interviewed on my podcast, he wrote a book called the complacent class, which is about, um, how uh, Americans in particular are taking a lot less risks than they used to. And one of the things, and he actually talks about the smartphone as sort of this like thing that really helps us not take risks, you know, by say being Mm -hmm. able to, uh, you know, rather than walking into a restaurant off the street because it looks good, you know, you kind of look it up on Yelp first or, you know, rather than going and, you know, meeting a stranger at a bar, you go on Tinder, like all these types of matching technologies that kind of reduce our exposure to risk. But one of the things that he talks about doing as an experiment, which I love, is, you know, looking at sort of the four most used apps on your phone and just taking them off your phone for a week. Mm-hmm. And that makes you so conscious of that impulse, you know, like you you get, you pick up your phone, you know, to like do whatever, to get on Twitter, to check your email, to, um, you know, to play that game. And you just, you realize like how many times a day that you're doing it when you, you know, you go to do it and it's not there anymore. Um, I mean, I still, I removed Twitter from my phone months ago and I still have moments where I'm like, oh, like I'll just tweet this. But then because it's not on my phone, I don't because I'm not going to like, you know, I'm Mm. out of the house or I'm not going to go, you know, get on my computer specifically because it's not that important. And then it makes you realize, well, it's not that important, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It really does put things in perspective. And I think I love this idea of the, the complacency that is being bred in us by uh, by devices like our smartphones, and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, my mum always talks about this. You know, she's like, people don't just talk to each other anymore. They don't go and find things out from another human. They 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 Google it. They go and find things out on their their phone before they even run the risk of things not turning out the way they think yeah. it will. You know, and I think that's that's really interesting. I'm re- I've been reading, dipping in and out of uh, this book, Utopia for Realists, uh-huh. which. Fantastic. And he writes about the idea that a dystopia is a place where people no longer have anything to strive for. And, you know, we kind of have arrived and then progress stops. And that's when it turns from utopia to a dystopia. And I, I feel like there's certainly an element of that in the the way we interact with technology and the way that changes how we interact with people and our communities. I mean, I don't, yeah, I just think that that's a really fascinating idea. I'd I'd love to dig more into that. I'll have to read that book. Do you think that it's a dystopia in the sense of like we're not striving for personal connection anymore? Yeah, I think, I mean, I do. I think that there's certainly an element of that in certain elements of society. You know, we, we kind of exist in this bubble where it's safer, it's safer, it's less 
uncomfortable to have those moments of boredom. It's less uncomfortable if we just kind of poke people with our phones rather than go in to talk to someone at a coffee shop. You know, we order things on our phones, we go in, we don't actually have any human interaction with people when we pick up our food. You know, I just, I, I feel like there is some kind of real disconnect and a discomfort that people are starting to become aware of because of this. And yet I don't necessarily know that we've put two and two together yet to see that the technology that is in so many ways incredibly wonderful is also having an impact on our ability to take risks. And I mean, I mean I'm not talking about hiking Everest, you know, just talking to a stranger kind of risk. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, people are constantly going for that low risk option. And I, you know, certainly, um, mm. you know, you see that tons with something like email, right? You know, you're ha- like you get some kind of, you know, confrontational email from someone and then, you know, get some lengthy, uh, you know, 10 paragraph response or something. And it's the whole dialogue, like could have been a phone call and could have been so much less contentious and probably yes. could have taken five minutes. But, you know, for some reason, no one wants to do that. And and in fact, it would be way more pleasant and way more, you know, efficient for everyone. So I think you're right. I mean, I think we do ourselves a really technology has become a real crutch, but in a way that Mm -hmm. is such a disservice to us as human beings. One of the interviews that I just did was um, with this journalist, David Sachs, who wrote this really great book called Revenge of the Analog. And we Mm -hmm. were talking about how, you know, if you think about your digital experiences, you know, you think about whatever email, you think about the interactions that you have on Instagram or Twitter, you know, you just don't, really have memories of those interactions, you know, in the way that you do, uh, you know, about a long dinner that you've had with someone or a hike Mm. that you went on with someone. And yet we're spending, you know, hours, two, four, six hours a day, you know, on these mediums, but it's almost like the sort of just like void afterwards, you know, you're not, because we're not doing things in the real world, kind of in 3D, we're we're not actually really creating meaningful experiences or things that we'll actually remember. And that's just like, it's kind of crazy when you think about it that way, like how much you're kind of giving away to the digital sphere. Yeah. And I I think the irony of so much of that is that so much energy gets put into curating an online life (laughs) that appears as though we're having those kinds of experiences or comparing ourselves so unfavorably to other people who appear as though they're having those kinds of experiences when in fact we're just wasting so much time and energy that could have been used having those experiences, not documenting in them, not you know, lighting them or, or framing them in a particular way that's going to look a particularly pretty kind of picture online but actually going to live them. I just find that, you know, the, that paradox really interesting that we would prefer well, not necessarily prefer, but regardless of whether we prefer or not, we are putting so much effort into life looking a certain way rather than living it a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You're sort of by capturing the moment, you're removing yourself from the moment. And not only are you removing yourself from the moment, you're actually it's it's in a weird way. Right. You know, you're you're speaking sort of obviously kind of specifically in a way probably about Instagram, you know, and you you <laughs> take a picture of a moment because you want to remember it. But I'm pretty sure this is backed up by research. You know, when you document things digitally, you actually feel like you don't have to remember them anymore. 
you know, because you know that they're saved. So you're kind of almost less likely, I think, to remember those things. So it's kind of this weird like erosion, right? By like kind of documenting what you're doing, you're really not present in the moment and you're making it kind of like you don't even need to remember it anymore. There's <laughs> something like very kind of, yeah, it's almost like living life in reverse or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I just, I find it fascinating. I mean, and I, I absolutely take photos of things. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't, but I do just think that, there's something really interesting at play there when that's where our energies seem to go. Yeah. When you almost get into this meta state, right? Like I'm sure, like I've definitely, you know, I'll admit I've had the moment, you know, you have that moment like where you're saying something to someone or you're writing something and you're like, oh, that would be a good tweet. Like there's like this <laughs> you <Totally>. know, meta <laughs> consciousness, like you're watching yourself live your life so that you can then document yourself living your life, which is really kind of puts you at almost at this remove from what's actually happening in a way that um, seems a little bit sad, probably. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I just think it's it's fascinating. And I'm going to kind of spend a bit, a bit of time thinking about that, I think. Now, I, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about briefly before we finish up is this kind of really interesting duality of slow living, where I think people look at the idea of slow living and, and think it's easy breezy, kind of chill and mellow and, and nothing phases you because for some reason life magically just happens. But what I've discovered is that there's a lot of head work and like systems to, you know, use a kind of boring term to put in place that allow for slowness. And I think that that's part of the conversation that maybe doesn't happen enough. And that's what I think you do so well on your podcast is you really peel back the covers on what it takes in terms of systems, organization and flexibility to find slowness in a, in a world that is the opposite is, you know, do you have a, a favorite tip or insight or, or, or something that you personally have learned through the podcast that helps you define slow even in, in the fast-paced world that we, we live in? Well, I don't think it's a tip exactly, but there's sort of a metaphor that I use for kind of thinking about, you know, I think essentially what you're saying is that, you know, the key to sort of being able to live, um, you know, at a more reasonable pace, being able to live slowly is really about kind of creating structures and setting boundaries, right? Right, yeah. I think for me, the metaphor that kind of helps me understand why that's so necessary is thinking about this fact that we kind of now have, I think essentially we all sort of have two selves now, right? We have our sort of physical self, our human body, which exists in time and space and has 24 hours a day. And then we have our digital self, which is this, you know, kind of collection of identities and inboxes, right? Your email inbox, your Twitter, your Instagram, your LinkedIn, whatever. Mm. It goes on and on and on, right? Your physical self is finite, right? You can only do so many things. You only have so many hours. But your digital self is infinite and it will allow any amount of, you know, demands and requests and updates to come in, right, to all of these different inboxes and identities. It never at any point, your digital self is never like, no, 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 that's, I can't handle anymore. It's just like, doors open, <laughs> like, yeah, bring it in, bring it in, you know? And so I think we look at these, you know, these, our inboxes, our digital inboxes, you know, and we get whatever it is, you know, 200 emails a day and you think like, oh yeah, like that's realistic. Like somehow you think that it would be reasonable to process the amount of email that you get. <laughs> but I think it's worth understanding that like what comes into your digital self, like there's no correlation to like what you could actually do, right? You have to kind of in your real world physical self decide like what you can do. 
that means that you're always going to have to say no to some things because this, you know, this digital self just collects an infinite amount of things, right? Like if you got 200 letters a day, you would never be like, oh, I'm going to respond to all those. That makes so much sense, right? (laughs) But email, somehow you feel like you should be able to do it. You feel bad about it if you can't. So I think for me, that metaphor is really crucial in thinking about, you know, why you really have to set boundaries. Like that's just kind of the way that it is and get really good at saying no. And I think, you know, also kind of framing it as, you know, you you have to say no to some opportunities so that you can say yes to some opportunities, right? It's not just about shutting things down. It's about creating space for the things that you really want to do. And there's this, um, there's a quote from an artist that I really like, Andrea Zittel, um, and she says that the creation of rules is more creative than the destruction of them, which I think hmm. is really beautiful because you think about, hmm. and, you know, we were talking about kind of analog creativity before, right? Like we actually, one of the reasons it's so great, like one of the reasons you probably like working on paper so much is like there are constraints, right? Like you have this amount of space, like you also don't have, you know, infinite distractions. You know, you could only do what you can do with kind of your with your hand and that pen. And that's, constraints are actually really useful for humans because they kind of define the boundaries, right? So I think we, you know, kind of have to just embrace this idea of setting boundaries and, you know, start to get really comfortable with saying no and understanding that like, we're all in the same situation, you know? So sometimes like when you say no, you're not going to hurt anyone's feelings. Like people are like, great, like, okay, this is not happening. (laughs) I'll move on, you know, as opposed to like when you say no and then you kind of regret it or you sort of, you know, you kind of like half-ass something and then like kind of, you know, back out of it later. Like that's not doing anyone any good, you know? It's like way better to just kind of Mm. be upfront, be efficient, you know, kind of make your area of focus clear. So that's kind of the way that I like to think about it. Yeah. And I, I, I love the, the line you kind of draw between our physical selves and our digital selves, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it is never ending. There are no constraints. You can't read the internet. You can't be finished with Twitter. You know, it's, it's constant and, and ever evolving and expanding. And somehow we have come to believe that, that, what's reasonable is is really not. It's really incredibly unreasonable. I do think it's interesting with the idea of saying no is is I think our generation, maybe the last couple of generations are really the, the first ones that have to get really good at saying no in a way that maybe previous generations haven't had to do. Did you have to learn how to say no personally? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think sometime around when I turned 30, I also resolved to like stop saying I was sorry for things that I wasn't sorry for. Um, yeah, nice. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's a skill. Um, I've actually written a number of blog posts about it, in fact, but now I really relish it. Like now I get excited about it. Yeah. Um, I, and I think once you kind of start to explore that space and you realize like, you know, you think that the world is going to end, you know, you think that people will be really upset with you. And when you realize, oh, it's like not that big of a deal, you know, then you can just sort of start to, I think, feel a bit more comfortable with it. But I do think you're a hundred percent right that it is a new challenge. And it's something that really is kind of Mm. wrought by this acceleration of technology, which is kind of, you know, creating this sort of, you know, more connectivity, which means more requests, which means more things to do. And so there's just this onus of like self-management and setting boundaries that is really completely new within the past kind of 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know, at least from the people that I speak to, 
Uh, and it's often a lot of women who really do struggle with the learning to say no. You know, we people pleasers want to kind of appeal to everyone and not ever put anyone out. So it's it's kind of a that's a learnt behaviour, and I think that saying no can also become a learnt behaviour. I was reading somewhere recently that you know we should really consider our default answer, shifting our default answer to be no rather than yes. And I think that that's a mistake I've made for many years is that my default answer was yes. And I'd have to convince myself that it should be no in each individual case, whereas just kind of setting the default at being no for whatever opportunity knocks on the door allows us to then convince ourselves when it's worthwhile to say yes to. And I think that that's been a helpful shift for me and hopefully will continue to be a helpful helpful shift for me over the, the coming years. But do you view things through a default answer or do you, you know, do you, do you come at things under their own steam for each individual opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple thoughts about that. I mean, I think that, you know, for whatever reason in this kind of world that we live in now, we tend to be like, we want some definitive answer, some definitive tip, right? Like here's the thing that works all the time. I think, you know, Mm. saying yes all the time or saying no all the time, I think it's super dependent on where you are in your career. You know, I think if you're young, you're just starting out or you're in transition, you're usually in a moment where you need to say yes a lot because you're trying to open up new opportunities and you're not really clear exactly where you're headed. I think a little bit later in your career or when you're just really clear on what your goals are, then you probably want to be saying no more often and asking yourself, you know, Mm. is this opportunity aligned with my goals? The answer is yes, then great. And if it's not, then you know, the answer is probably no. But there is this really useful concept that I'll share before we before we kind of wrap up, which I used in the in the book Unsubscribe. Um, It's not a sort of research based concept, but it's kind of this um, concept that a sort of theory of the way that people work that someone proposed that really resonated with me, which is this idea that um, there's sort of two types of people in the world. There's askers and there's guessers. Askers are kind Mm -hmm. of um, raised to believe that it's always fine to ask for anything, but you have to be okay with understanding that people might say no. And some people are kind of raised in this like sort of asker type of culture. Now, other people are raised in sort of a guess type of culture. And that means that you would only ask someone for something if you think that they are incredibly likely to say yes. And so you're always kind of attuned to the little gestures and signs that indicate if someone might be receptive to a proposal. And so if you're raised in a guest culture, you're really only going to ask someone for something if you think they're likely to say yes. And so the problem happens Um, And I think where we all get this kind of put upon feeling is when askers clash with guessers, right? Right. So this happens a lot in email. So if you're a guesser, and I'm guessing a lot of probably female listeners are, you know, what happens when you get an email from an asker is you think that they is, they expect you to say yes because you only ask people to do things when you expect them to say yes. But the thing is, yeah, right. like the asker doesn't really care if you say no. They're just kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall and they're like, maybe they'll say yes, maybe they'll say no. Like it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to give it a shot, right? And so I think that's a really – I love that distinction because it really kind of freed me up to rather than saying – for me, that the default answer is no. It's just the default is that I don't think anyone expects me to say yes, you know? Um, So that's kind of the default that I work from is that the assumption is that someone is always expecting that, you know, maybe I'll say no or probably I'll say no. 
And so that's kind of the assumption that I operate from is that I'm always kind of getting this question from someone who's in this kind of asker state of mind and, you know, we'll probably be totally fine if I decline it and they're just kind of floating it out there and, you know, it's kind of no big deal either way. So I think kind of playing with that idea that the expectation is actually that you will say no helps you kind of relieve a little bit of that anxiety and that sort of put upon feeling and feel a little bit more comfortable saying no. Yeah. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that it's a choice for us to view things from one way or the other. And I really like that distinction between the asker and the guesser. Uh, I'm going to carry that around with me. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot. Jocelyn, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your podcast and your books and all the work that you do. I really appreciate very much uh, the time that you've given us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brooke. It's a pleasure. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.